It's August 16th, 2021, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition news headlines. And so I'm going to throw you off uh, base a little bit with the first one since it wasn't actually in the in the blog post, but physics busting requirements challenge U.S. Army FARA program from Aviation Week. There's no version in the world that exists in, vis- in physics, except maybe on a different planet where the speed at range endurance at range and payload all exist in a 14,000 pound helicopter. Not at what we're asking for, Farrah project manager Fortier said in a July 22nd um, industry day. Let's just be real about that. So I wanted to just jump this one in here because we talked last week about the Farrah program and that Bell was actually redesigning its its ducted tail rotor and they're just going to go with an open tail rotor. It it seemed like there's something going on there with the requirements, right? Uh, that might not be realistic, realistic, and they were kind of adjusting along the way. But it seems like here, here we go again. The the army in this case, you know, through the traditional requirements process, uh, came out with something that was not physically possible, and then uh, probably spent a bunch of uh, man hours to figure that out, and then they had to kind of change course a little bit. So they're going to loosen up the requirements, and we'll see what we get out of it. Isn't isn't that uh, then the exact same thing happened with the the OMFD? An optionally manned fighting vehicle, where they came out the requirements, so then they uh, they had to rewicker wicker it all. So yeah, but was it physically not possible, or was is it just so hard that only one company was like screw? Like, not possible. <laughs> came back and said like you know a decade later that was physically not possible either, right? And then uh, and then there was severe requirement problems with the LCS, right? Like a forty knot, and then Zoomwalt again. So. Uh, you might push back on, on the, uh, F-35 one, but someone in the air force, uh, did tell me that it turned out some assumptions were not physically possible. And yeah. I mean, I guess there's like, uh, there's something to be said for pushing the boundaries, but that, you know, it kind of shows like that our requirements process, you know, should be, uh, kind of geared towards prototyping some things, you know, especially now they have more digital engineering models, you know, kind of experimenting and saying, okay, is what we're putting in here something that could be done in a reasonable amount of time. And yeah, definitely should uh, pass the physically possible test. Yeah, I, that is the catch 22, right? Because it's like, well, I want to be high TRL, high technology readiness, but then I also want to be doing something new and beneficial that we haven't done in, in the past. It is like, how do, how do I really walk that line? And maybe sometimes like the linear extrapolation is actually the thing that's not very easy to do like with the c5 cargo airplane they're just like oh well we can just make it like this much heavier and we'll get that much more uh payload out of it but then it turns out there's, there's like a non-linear function with respect to the cost and i wonder to what degree maybe like the fourteen thousand pounds was just like hey if for this aircraft to be affordable it's got to be fourteen thousand pounds or less because that's what my cost model was telling me in the past but it's like well maybe when you uh just because you said like it's going to be that much less weight and you still want the same capability package doesn't mean you're actually going to be able to get there. Yeah, some of those like some of those requirements too are often driven by platforms of the day, you know, like yeah, this is uh I need I need it to carry this much because our current tanks weigh this much. Uh but it yeah, otherwise, you know, it it would it would probably they would probably come up with a different number, right, if it wasn't if it wasn't on that. And then those platforms change over time. So, so that, that requirement probably, you know, probably could morph if it had to, but it, you know, that's not how we operate. I think this one's in contrast to the Army IVAS program for the uh, HoloLens goggles, where they actually seem to do the <clears throat> requirements pretty well there, where they interacted with the user and kind of figured it out along the way and didn't really lock anything down. And they were able to, like, the, the Microsoft was able to kind of work organically on a roadmap then kind of iterate through without, you know, these kind of more strict requirements, but, you know, that's a very different kind of development as well. It's just some goggles, right. With a bunch of technology on it, rather than like a helicopter that people, that people's lives are going to depend on. Of course, the goggles, people's lives are going to depend on that as well, but uh, you're not going to fall out of the sky from them. One, one, one last thought on that is, you know, back when, you know, I'd say like 10, 15 years ago, I think we were a little bit better about with our requirements documents about having a, you know, one of, one of the tenets in the document is to have like a threshold and objective. And the threshold would be the absolute minimum that you could, you know, possibly deal with. And the objective would be something that would, you know, be really beneficial with, you know, improve operations and 
you know, allow you to do more stuff than, than the bare minimum. Uh, and so there, I think if that had been used correctly, I think it actually would kind of solve this where like you could have come up with some very minimum requirements for like, you know, could have come up with some minimum requirements, but then had, you know, the, some of the objective requirements be, you know, much broader, much more, uh, you know, challenging. But I think the, what happened is actually the, the minimums became incredibly severe. And then the objectives were like, you know, super crazy. And so after a while, they kind of abandoned that whole threshold objective and just said, why would we, be, why would we fund anything over your, your threshold? And so now the threshold equals objectives and many, many requirements documents that are developed today. I do think that's kind of like missing the point a little bit about this, where you're like, maybe you should have a range that you can meet. You have a bare minimum, but then, you know, you allow contractors to kind of exceed that. And, and that's part of the competition. Yeah, you would think that the competition would figure that out, but it seems like the comp, even if you did have the thresholds, like both competitors would be like, I got to reach the objective or my counterpart will go for the objective and, and get the contract just because of that and get, and then get the follow on program and everything else. And even if they, you know, hack together something that might not be feasible and sustainment or otherwise, you know, they'll get to that objective, right. And make those compromises. Uh, so maybe just like by having the objective, it doesn't matter if you had the threshold, like the incentives are to get there or have like everyone acknowledge that the objective wasn't, wasn't right in the first place. Um, so that you, everyone can kind of save face together. Yeah, I guess you, you're right. You, you, that probably would happen the way that we typically do things, I guess in the, in the, the right way to do it would be to have that best value competition. And yeah, if somebody was able to get the objectives and keep the costs at the, at a reasonable level, then yeah, maybe they would, they would win, but you would expect those costs to go up with the increase in, in capability. So then it would be a trade-off kind of thing is, is that worth it? Or, you know, yeah, depending on how the evaluation criteria was written, but yeah. All right. Next one we got here also from aviation week, Valanzi marks maritime drone delivery milestone delivery drone developer Valanzi uh, completed the first autonomous unmanned air system UAS maritime cargo delivery between two moving U.S. government ships at sea near Key West, Florida. And Valanzi, of course, is the company that's now uh, headed by Will Roper, the old uh, Air Force acquisition executive. So Valanzi is doing some new things with the Navy and uh, a cool little demonstration. We'll see, you know, what that really means in terms of operational capability, like how much does the Navy really need in, in this kind of drone delivery between ships? But then also, what does that actually mean if you could branch it out and do like, what are the adjacent possibles for this type of system? Yeah, that, I was wondering that too. And I first saw it, I was like, yeah, that's kind of a neat demonstration, but it's like, is there a need for doing a lot of like 20 pound transfers? Uh, you know, uh, like what, what, where does that, where does that requirement come from? Uh, but clearly, this was like a demo to show that that could be done. It could be done autonomously, and that they would expand that. So, so maybe there is a maybe there is a role that instead of a ship having to, um, you know, to come into dock and, and go through that whole process and pay for the docking, maybe there is a a scenario where you could have you know multiple drones on shore that bring out some of the key supplies that are needed. You know, if you, if they could carry 100 pounds and you had 100 drones, you know, you might be able to get you know, some pretty good resupplies there. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe there is an application there, but wasn't really clear on the requirements either. But yep. Interesting. Next one, we got the latest revolutionary tools in warfare, microwaves from the Washington Post. In the video demonstrations I watched, the Epirius uh, system known as Leonidas, I believe that's for the Sparta guy uh, from 300, uh, can disable an adversary drone, but leave untouched a friendly one a few feet away. It can take down big fixed-wing drones as well as tiny quadcopters. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper just joined Apiris board, and the Pentagon plans to start deploying the company's counter-drone system to U.S. forces around the world this year. The breakthrough for anti-drone microwaves was what they call smart power, using dense, super-dense gallium nitrate chips and AI algorithms to stabilize focus and direct energy to precise frequencies. So here's a little bit more. We talked about this before. We saw the cool videos where they were taking down drones. Um, a few people I know are pretty skeptical of microwaves and directed energy more generally um, and think that kinetic is the way. But, you know, it looks like the, the DOD is kind of uh, interested here in, in this technology and what it can do. And maybe there's some cool things it can do. 
Yeah, it's actually a little, it's actually a little bit scary, you know, given how much we're investing in drone technology. If it, the one thing I don't, I don't really uh, know is could, how, how far could this be done? Like what's the max range? So, you know, do you have to be in the vicinity or could it be done 10 miles offshore? You know, generally microwaves. Yeah. I think we'd probably have some range limitations, but uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely, definitely a little scary uh, for, uh, for kind of some of the drones, especially if we start to have more autonomous, um, you know, aut autonomous uh, capabilities. But uh, yeah, one thing I picked up on in this, you're, you're right that, it, um, yeah, it was an impress impressive video, but they also say, I don't know if this is just like their, their executives kind of maybe hyping the system a little bit, but they say, hey, again, it could, it could disable a drone's rotor or its camera or its GPS navigation system, or even implant code to manipulate its movements. So yeah, they've got, definitely gotten the microwaves to be extremely precise, but yeah, kind of interesting that it could implant code and you could like maybe uh, maybe hijack it and take it over. So kind of curious about that. They didn't say much more about that, but might, might be some things they're working on in one of their next upgrades or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm on their website. I'm trying to look for the range, but uh, they're not really giving it to me. <laughs> I like that either. Uh, actually, the, here it is. With with the range of 500 meters uh, is no, from actually something we talked about from a Science Focus article a few weeks ago. That's where that came from, 500 meters. But so yeah, they're probably gonna have to get it further out. You know, interesting technology. You know, it's always like, you know, you probably wouldn't have expected AI to be useful in that way of determining the frequencies. And then I don't know exactly what they're doing with the gallium nitrate, but I'm sure there's a lot of interesting things going on there. Yeah. All right, next one, we got the Pogo Remembers. Pierre Spray, Pentagon Provocateur and Mentor from Pogo. Every time a pilot takes off an F-16 or a soldier is saved on A-10 sweeps in enemy's position with a burst of a 30-millimeter rounds, Pierre Spray's contribution to our national defense are on display. The world lost a towering man when he died peacefully in his Maryland home on August 4, 2021. So it was an interesting long-form long article, but of course, Pierre Spray was part of the uh, fighter, quote-unquote, fighter mafia with uh, John Boyd and others, and he was really one of the the leading minds behind A-10 apparently did, you know, tons of, uh, you know, actually research and talking with uh, German and American as well, German from World War II and American from the Korean War in terms of how they were taking out tanks and all this kinds of stuff in order to kind of understand the requirements for the A, and, you know, also had a big effect on the lightweight fighter competition as well. So I think it was him that, that actually uh, created or like came up with the idea for the underslung uh, inlets for the, the F-16. Uh, so, you know, it's sad to see him go. I'm actually surprised he was around as long as he was. I had the pleasure of meeting him at a Pogo event. I think it was last year, right before coronavirus. And he threw a bunch of knowledge points on me. Uh, great guy. And he, he kind of got me interested in Seymour Melman too, as an author. He told me to go read him on the demise of American machine tool industry. So um, sad to see him go and a very interesting guy. Yeah, no, that was, a, it was a nice piece that on him. And, uh, I definitely understand maybe a little bit why the uh, Pogo guys love the A-10 so much and hate the F-35, but, uh, <laughs> but no, it was, a, it was a nice, it was a nice tribute. So, yeah. Yeah. They did kind of talk in there. They were like, oh, we can't get rid of the A-10 still. Um, so it's still kind of politicizing that, but you know, Pierre Spray, of course, is one of those guys, they kind of look you know, other people in the regular parts of the Air Force and otherwise kind of see him and others as like Luddites, right? Um, but there's also something to be said about just like getting the simplest, um, the simplest answer to, to a problem in some cases. So, and then building off of that, maybe, maybe the problem was that they just weren't able to kind of let go and, and do that next round of what they had done, but differently in a different way, in a different time with different technology. Yeah, no, I, I definitely love that philosophy. And yeah, you can't fault the F-16 or the A-10. I mean, you know, they definitely served served way beyond their life <laughs> that they were expected to. So so huge successes, can't, can't argue that. Yeah, and the Air Force, of course, never actually expected to inventory the F-16, right? <laughs> they were kind of bullied into it when it turned out the uh, international community wanted to buy it for the next international fighter. Uh, competition. I think that was in like 1974 or 75 uh, when GE kind of put it on display and they're like, all right, fine, we'll buy it too. 
Yeah, for the capability, I mean, I I used to work for a general who who's saying it was like pound for pound, it's the best fighter around. You know, it's like you know, for as small as it is and as cheap as it is, yeah, it is like it is incredibly effective. So yeah, and luckily uh, John Boyd had the foresight to add some uh, wing surface area because he knew the Air Force would want to grow it to certain types of missions he did not foresee, like air to ground. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, the F-15 had claimed to air-to-air superiority, right? So they had to kind of push the, the F-16 in a little bit different direction. Um, so let's move on. Appropriate appropriations of the transactions from the Strategic Institute. It is clear from the foregoing discussion that various R&D activities can be funded by appropriations other than the R&D appropriation, such as O&M or procurement funds. The Government Accountability Office generally takes the view that when an agency has two or more appropriations that are consistent with the purpose of a transaction, it may make a choice as to which appropriation it uses. However, once having made the choice, it should consistently use that same appropriation account for similar transactions. So here, uh, Rick Dunn, the uh, OTA guru, is kind of trying to remind us that, hey, you know, what is a prototype project in terms of the other transaction world is not the exact same thing as what you find in the, the financial management regulations in terms of uh, requiring that only RDT&E funds can be used for that purpose. And in fact, he's, he's kind of arguing here that procurement and O&M funds can be used for other transactions, uh, basically as long as you're being somewhat consistent with how you're thinking about any specific buy. So if you're used to, you know, buying or like doing prototyping on an airframe with RDT and E, you can't just use O and M funds. So I'd be kind of interested to think about, you know, where do those O and M funds, where would they be used potentially for other transactions on kind of like digital technologies, I'm sure would be, you know, appropriate there where, especially when you see like BA8, uh, it's kind of hard to distinguish between RDT and E and, and maintenance funds in terms of how that contributes to you know, getting new capabilities out. So interesting stuff. Yeah, I thought it was a good write-up. I mean, yeah, I, I don't, I think he's right that you can use procurement in some cases, uh, especially for, um, uh, for some, for some, for, for some prototypes, if you, you know, if you kind of articulate it uh, to, to fit that definition, you can use O&M uh, if there's like an operational kind of connection. So yeah, I think you can do it, but I think in general, you know, it's one thing to say this, but most most FMers, most most people in comptroller shops will generally take a harder line about, you know, that you should you should have R and D funds for prototyping. So if you're doing a an OT for prototype, you're probably going to get pushed to do RDTNE funds, and and this might be a tough argument in some cases to make. So you have to be <laughs> you have to be ready to to kind of fight that battle if you want to try to do something uh, do something different like this. Yeah, but I feel like for digital. Like if I'm going to do like a digital capability upgrade or something like that, or even like a new type of thing, I, w- I would almost assume like, well, what is my ONF? Like, what is software maintenance really, right? It's like fixing these bugs kind of, right? But that's also development, right? It's like fixing these things and actually making it work better or differently in many cases. And so, I don't know, some people have tried to come at me and say like, no, software maintenance really is this well-defined thing that you can't, that doesn't look like development. And other people are like, development is development. And, and you're just kind of like, you know, fi- fixing your technical debt and stuff like that, really. Um, and, and they're sort of same, some of the same process. So, I don't know. I wish, I, I, I hear you in reality is probably not the case. Like FMers are going to take the strict view. And I don't really see, I would like, I would have liked him to kind of, outline, you know, what exactly do you have in mind that could actually be, uh, you know, using these other appropriations. He gave an example of DARPA buying a bunch of AR-15s for an experiment in Vietnam. And it's like, oh, well, those should probably have been procurement funds or something like that. But in reality, DARPA was using RDT&E funds. So, hey, look at that, (laughs) you know, but I would have liked, uh, I guess, some more pointed direction. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong on the digital piece. You, you might be able to get away that if, if you're doing some type of prototype that could be claimed to not be an enhancement, but like a better way of sustaining it or something, you could maybe, but I think that Mars kind of clear about what's, you know, what's an enhancement. I mean, they do define it and what's just, you know, general maintenance. I think it is a, it is a blurry line. I think most people, you know, do have to kind of look at 
at each feature that's going to be done to say, oh, is this a sustainment thing or is this a, a development thing? Is this improving form fit function, things like that? So there are certain words that I think the comptroller shops typically look for to say, oh, this is a new thing, R&D. But, but um, yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good for them to kind of, I think it's good to put those kind of articles out there and make people think and make sure that, okay, a time purpose amount, got it, but maybe we have more flexibility than, than we acknowledge sometimes. Army Futures Command outlines next five years of AI needs from C4ISRnet. The service is particularly interested in AI research of autonomous ground and air platforms, which must operate in open, urban, and cluttered environments. The document specifically asks for research into technologies that allow for robots or autonomous systems to move in urban contested environments, as well as technologies that reduce the electromagnetic profile of the systems. It also wants to know more about AI that can sense ob- obscure targets and understand terrain obstacles. So this was just kind of an interesting little article that outlined a whole bunch of things that AFC was interested in AI for. But I thought it was kind of interesting uh, that one of their primary things was this kind of urban cluttered environment. Whereas when I'm thinking about this pivot to you know great power competition, the Navy is kind of thinking about open seas and Taiwan Straits and the Air Force thinking about A2D and, you know, these kind of larger, you know, in the Pacific, broader open, open areas. But, you know, to some degree, I think there's going to be a lot of that kind of proxy war as well and, you know, risk of what happens in urban environments. So it's good the Army is really kind of keying in on this. Yeah, I mean, you think about the Army mission, the, the, Navy, the Navy has some, some inherent benefits of operating in open space where they can kind of have some somewhat, you know, decent situational awareness. The Air Force operates, you know, usually at higher altitudes and has a good set situation where the Army, you know, in many cases, these forces are on the ground. They're very reliant on other platforms to tell them, you know, to give them that situation awareness. So yeah, for, for them to be able to access those data sets and be able to say, okay, here's where the enemy's at. Here's where you know, some obstacles are, we need to go this way, they'll do that real time, is going to be really critical for them in some, some of those some of those fights. And I'm sure a lot of this is based on experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, where they, they face these hurdles. One of the things I did, I, the, the, one of the pieces that you mentioned, though, that I think is really critical is the electromagnetic profile. Right. Is, yeah, that, that is really something that DOD is trying to come to grips with, is there's so many signals out there, especially as, you know, countries move into you know, putting up more cell towers and putting up, you know, having more RF and in all the different spectrums. And there's just a lot more demand, you know, satellite RF. And there's just a lot more demand for, uh, for bandwidth. It's, it's tougher for DOD to operate on, on, you know, uncontested, you know, in the EM spectrum. So that's going to become, I think, really more critical is the ability to, to operate um, with a lower profile, uh, EM profile. So you think that's kind of interesting. They threw that in the mix, but some of the other stuff that um, that I thought was kind of interesting is the the um, yeah AI sensing on the battlefield, detecting people, equipment, and weapons. Also, wants to set sense targets based on physical, behavioral, cyber, or other signatures. And then, additionally, wants AI enabled sensors that detect chem bio, radionuclearological, and explosive threats. So, yeah, definitely uh, definitely went to spectrum with uh, uses for AI from the shortage there. Yeah, it also feels like a, a giant wish list. It's I guess some of my wish is just like, hey, like what are the literal things that you're you're looking to do here in the near term and not like what's the, the whole wish list of of things. I mean, I get it, like you want to do everything well, but like um maybe maybe they, they did neck it down relative to like the, the big world and but still it it felt it's it felt pretty big. Um I guess it is a five year plan, but well, the one nice thing is hopefully that if you if you have platforms like Striker and uh, you know the, the the combat vehicle, you know remote combat vehicle, and some of these other things, these these sensors and these you know algorithms could be you know kind of modular, where you know maybe maybe install these sensors on those vehicles, and you you kind of install the same thing over on these other vehicles, and so it's something you can you can develop you know independent of some of the platforms. Uh, and then hopefully if they're architected right, they can be kind of uh, uh, configured, you know, to, to various, almost like buses, you know, like satellite buses and just, yeah, well, okay, we need a chem, we need a chem bio. There's a potential chem bio threat. We'll put that sensor on for this mission. Oh, okay. This one's more focused on, you know, there's a lot of people in the area. 
So yeah, hopefully, you know, maybe this starts to become like where it's more of a modular kind of approach and they can plug and play. Yeah. Either, I guess, victory or maybe the Sosa <laughs> to play it in there. Right. So I would love, it, it would be great. I, I guess this is what I wish I would see. Like whenever they come out with these big strategy documents, I would love like an indexing or like some kind of hyperlinking that just says like, okay, you want to do this kind of contested electromagnetic profile, you know, determination. What are the systems that you're actually working on that are going there? Or like, who's actually responsible for bringing that about? Or like, what are the pieces that connect into this puzzle? Right. I would just like, I don't know. I would just like, as I go through something like this to be able to understand where the force structure is now in terms of those programs. And then like, you know, what are the things that are getting me further into that, into that mix? Do they already, you know, do they have contracts out that are, that are going for X, Y, or Z, or is it like, yeah, well, we've been working on X forever. These are the things that we have. Y we've been working. We just started, we have one contract and then Z like that's in the future. We're, we're hoping to get there, you know, something like that. It, it would be super helpful um, just from a layman's kind of perspective. Yeah, some of these some of these I haven't hadn't heard of, but I mean the you, you've been involved too with the uh, like um, GVSC kind of stuff that that they have been doing a lot of work on that um, you know the autonomous ground kind of uh, you know being able to being able to kind of go over terrain obstacles and you know navigate uh, you know navigate autonomously uh, when they need to. So some of that stuff we know is in work, but yeah, I'm with you on the on the rest of it. It might just it might be right now just sort of like they're figuring out. What requirements they need and and what's the, what's the time frame for going after it and fun. yeah, again like I, I feel like well to understand what that real requirement should be or could be in the timelines to get there you need to know where you're at right now right and I, I assume someone knows where they're at but it seems like again with the army like what they have five thousand RDTE like budget pages or something like that and there's like how many program elements hundreds many, many hundreds of program elements in that RDT and anything. It's like, I mean, I'm not an army expert. Like I can't be like, I'm sure there's army experts out there that might be able to like name these things off the top of their head. But like, I don't know. I would, I would like somewhere to do, I would like somewhere to go find that stuff. That's not me literally like matching documents to budget documents, you know? You want that, you want that, uh, have you seen that graphic that the Navy kind of uses where they show every single ship in the inventory? And yeah, but, the, but the Navy's nice because it has like <laughs> these big force projection things, right? It's like, oh, well, there's like, here's the, the list of ships. But yeah, essentially something like That's that, but like we're, we're getting, but we're getting into a world where the platforms matter a little bit less. It's like, what are all those suites of capabilities and where they go? And so it's like, it's almost like Jane's, but like, I don't know, some kind of, some kind of meta coherence on Jane's, right? That, that allows me to kind of like rack and stack all the things in Jane's according to, you know, according to the objectives in, in the army's AI strategy, for example, right. In these different, in these different ways. You're too, you're too needy, Eric. You want, you yeah, want, I want it all. <laughs> all right. The Navy is nearing decisions on small, medium UVs that's undersea unmanned vessels or unmanned undersea vessels <laughs> replacement options from defense news, the MK 18 mod one swordfish and the M and the Mark 18 mod two kingfish date back to the late 1990s and 2000s. The medium-sized Razorback UUV has a program history more than a decade long with the Navy initially seeking a UUV that could sense the littoral battle space. The Lionfish small UUV and the Viperfish medium UUV will replace these three legacy programs that are making good progress and should be ready to replace the predecessors in the next two to three years. So... The, the Navy was basically saying that they had a couple of, uh, you know, they, they have their legacy systems and those things they're trying to upgrade, but they're pretty much getting to the end of their usefulness because of they're built in an older paradigm um, and they're going to replace them with the lionfish and the viper fish. I didn't really get too much out of it, but we'll, we'll see what's going on with the UUVs and the USVs. I'm pretty excited about uh, the Navy's experimentation and prototyping. It seems like they got a bunch of prototypes out there. Um, so. We'll be doing another inventorying of that soon, I'm sure. Yeah, and the Navy came out with their uh, their kind of grand autonomy strategy too, which is uh, kind of interesting. I'm sure it kind of plays into this because yeah, I'm with you. It didn't sound like it didn't sound like this was going to be you know hugely dramatically different. It was a slight, sort of like a natural upgrade for new sensors, really autonomy being the the, the new the new package, so that 
um, you know, it could actually circle back, and, you know, if it needs to like, if it sees a, sees something of interest, it can go do a kind of a, a re reconnoiter and, and take some better pictures or do some better identification kind of processing. So yeah, it's, it seemed like a natural kind of upgrade. The, the one that, the one that got me though, was the uh, launched and recovered from a submarine torpedo tube. So launch kind of makes sense, but re also recovered. Does that mean it like climbs back up the tube? After it's uh, done, completed its mission, I thought that was kind of interesting. So, <laughs> well, SpaceX got to land a rocket, you know, <laughs> vertical on a little pad in the sea. Like, so it's like, man, maybe, yeah. maybe these are possible, right? All right, next one we will go to is uh, let's just stick with SpaceX. SpaceX remains the sole winner of NASA's astronaut moon lander contract. GAO affirms the pertinent question is whether the protester would have submitted a different offer that would have had a reasonable possibility of being selected for award had it known that the requirement would have been waived, the GAO stated. The GAO also added that there was enough differentiation between SpaceX Blue Origin and Dynetics proposals to tilt the assessment towards SpaceX award. So I think that, again, the to recap the deal here, SpaceX, I think, put in like three point something billion and they only got 800 million or so for the Artemis moon lander. And so they wanted to make two awards, but like at the last minute, they kind of had to change change some of the uh, requirements on, on the solicitation and SpaceX was able to come in. I guess what the GAO is saying here is, hey, even if Blue Origin did have the chance to kind of you know update their proposal, they just wouldn't have been competitive at, at that price or there would have been nothing substantial different. And that SpaceX had kind of such a different um, technical approach as well that they were already in the lead and there was nothing that <laughs> that uh, Blue Origin really could have done. And what I've heard recently is actually Blue Origin is now suing again to kind of like open this question back up. But um, Elon Musk, you also, <laughs> I don't know if you saw on Twitter, he was kind of like showing uh, Blue Origin's uh, prototype lander kind of being assembled somewhere. I think it looked like at a trade show and it didn't look like it was much and he was kind of like denigrating it as well. So uh, definitely some uh, heated discussions here, and I guess it's not closed, but it looks like the GAO found in, in favor of SpaceX, and it looks like they're just going to get the contract uh, to go uh, to be the the sole source for the the moon land. Yeah, I read through this decision, and my takeaway was that fundamentally, even though there was some changes, like none of it was completely out of the ordinary, and that they had actually been when when they actually started to open up the process to. To kind of look through like okay what are the milestone payments going to be what's the schedule what are the acceptance criteria they, they started to kind of you know go into discussions and negotiation that that was like a natural part of the source selection because they had already been chosen as like yeah like through by the officials they had already been chosen so so yeah it was kind of like margin i think was really stretching to make this case that that wasn't a proper procedure and i think geo it doesn't seem like it took them a long time to go oh this was this was part of the normal you know, part of the normal, uh, you know, source selection kind of uh, process. So, yeah. I'm sure the saga is not close on that one, but we did see that the, the spacesuits uh, are going to cost more than expected and probably delay into 2025. So that might delay the whole thing. Uh, maybe SpaceX is like, phew, <laughs> right? Give us a little bit more time to get there. But, but uh, they also, Elon Musk said, we might be able to take, take on the spacesuit as well. So, NASA's also, I guess, doing a new RFI solicitation for potentially a commercial spacesuit, right? They're going to like, I guess, hand out the tech data for what they had been trying to integrate in-house um, and then kind of offer that back out and see if any, like what kind of commercial solutions using that or otherwise there might be. Yeah. I'd like to give Elon a shot at the spacesuit. That would, that would be, that would be interesting to see what he comes up with. Yeah. They, they have the spacesuit for the cabin or for the crew, right? The, the dragon crew cabin, but must be it's for not, the external. Yeah, yeah, that's not. It's not for external, so it's not yeah. rated to get out of. <laughs> you want to make sure it works for the uh, spacewalks. <laughs> but the ones that they had there that were, you know, internal to the to the capsule, they look really cool. <laughs> I'm sure they yeah. won't look as cool when you have to do the external because those would still look like even the new ones that NASA was trying to put together. They still look bulky and weird. But yeah, the SpaceX one did look really good. It almost looked like a like, yeah, Star Trek uniforms or something. An F-35 pilot's helmet costs more than a Ferrari and takes two days to get fitted from task and purpose. The F-35 helmet is a technological marvel. It can display night vision, thermal imagery, and video from below the jet, letting pilots effectively see through the airframe and track targets without having to look back and forth from their cockpit screens. 
Imagine if you're in a car, you're driving and you want to eat a pizza. It will put a triangle over all the pizza restaurants, small things. So that's basically what <laughs> we'll just cut you off there. But he was basically saying that kind of technology is basically what they're seeing in the F-35, like, you know, situational awareness where they're just basically pointing out everything that's that's important to you and letting you know where it is and what it is. Um, small things such as a new haircut or a couple pounds gained could cause a helmet not to fit correctly as well. So we've been hearing a lot about the the helmet. It's I think it's in the hundreds of thousands, right? You know, I, I don't know what a Ferrari costs these days, but remember the helmet was like over $300,000 or something like that, three to 600,000. Uh, but you can do a bunch of cool stuff. Uh, any thoughts? Yeah, the helmets used to be even more expensive. They were they were in the, I think they were in the more 600 plus because they were basically built by hand from a very, very small manufacturer. And yeah, we had a lot of problems with them, green glow and, yeah, not everything worked right. And so there have been some upgrades. This is like the version three of it. It is a marvel. I mean, it, it kind of de can detect the pilots and it, all the pilots' movements. The pilot only has to look at the target that's displayed, uh, you know, and, and it will pull up, you know, like weapon selections. And the pilot can use his eye to just pick the weapon that they would like to deploy to take out that target. So, yeah, very, very capable. Um, I think the one. I don't know what a Ferrari goes for these days either. And, and probably different versions of Ferrari that could get you really expensive over, over 400 K. But I, I did kind of think that, you know, you have to think about like the F being sort of like a, a Ferrari. And I was, I just did like a, I, I watch F1 and I'm really into it. And the front wing of an F1 car costs $150,000 and a, the car itself costs 12 million. So, you know, we were talking about, a, we're talking about a Cadillac, a Ferrari fighter jet here. And so the fact that the helmet costs 400K, I don't think is like completely crazy given the jet itself costs, you know, 80, 90 million. So uh, yeah, it is, it, is a, it is a sophisticated helmet, but if you're the pilot, that helmet is, you know, a pretty critical piece of equipment that you want to make sure it works, works right and, and does what you need to, otherwise things can go right. So yeah, I'd be interested to hear what happened with, because I remember people were complaining that there was an awful lot of clutter and it potentially had caused an accident i'm not sure but yeah I carrier thing where yeah it wasn't calibrated right or something yeah. yeah and so you know of course this helmet came around like before oculus right <laughs> so like this is probably like older technology i wonder you know if you were going to build it again from scratch like would there be a lot more kind of commercial off the shelf type stuff that you could use and also like what's going on remember that fox program where they're basically putting a, a tablet into the uh f-35 like is that an augmentation of what was supposed to be in the helmet or, you know, otherwise? So I don't know. There, there might be also I, this, this article didn't really get into all that, but you know. Well, I don't, I think pilots always want more information. And so I think there's probably a, <clears throat> there's probably a need for some type of, you know, uh, iPad type kind of situation where you, you can pull up, you can pull up different things you need that maybe are not your standard display things for, um, uh, for your heads up. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely advanced in technology. I'm quite sure I haven't seen the latest configuration, but I'm quite sure there's probably a ton of COTS components that comprise it. it it's been, yeah, it's been upgraded a lot more from its original configuration. So it's, it's practically, I think like a brand new helmet. Um, yeah. I wonder what oversight would say about that. Oh, it's a, it's practically a brand new thing. So well, we'll, we'll stick with the same company here, but a, a different area. Skunk Works Factory of the Future will be roaming robots to rapidly assemble top secret aircraft from the drive. Lockheed Martin's famous Skunk Work Advanced Projects Division has opened a new cutting edge manufacturing facility at its campus in Palmdale, California. A company representative told the war zone that the electro impact robots had drilled more than 7,519 holes in the structures for the X. I think that's the the quiet supersonic aircraft for, for NASA um, at a rate of one hole every 21 seconds. And that only 23 of those need to be redrilled. This level of accuracy and machining also helps ensure uniformity in parts, including spares, which is important for sustaining the system as time goes on. The robots are capable of being programmed to perform this work autonomously. Okay, I, here's, a, here's a bunch of automation going on at Lockheed Martin. It seems like they're kind of at the cutting edge here in, in terms of some of this aircraft manufacturing stuff, as they should be. Um, so it's good to see. Uh, Skunk Works has a great reputation. 
And, but it's also interesting that, you know, I know Skunk Works has done some manufacturing, right? Like it did the U2 and the SR-71 and I think the F-117 all in-house, but like the F-22 and the F-35 kind of got transitioned out. Like, are they also planning to use some of this stuff on an F-5 line or I don't know? We'll see. Probably not. F-35 line is very, uh, yeah, it's probably something maybe that like NGAD when that competition happens or some of the next advanced aircraft, but now the F-35 line is pretty well established in Fort Worth. They're, they're not going to move out to Palmdale. Palmdale does actually make uh, pieces of it. It's not Lockheed, but Northrop. Could they use electro impact robots? At I don't Fort Worth? know if they do or not, but I did look up that company. They are some pretty interesting robots. I've been on the F-35 line many, many times. And I will say there's nothing quite like those robots, at least in the pictures or, or the videos that I watch. Those are, those are some pretty, uh, pretty advanced looking uh, machinery. I am kind of curious. So we've talked about before about the, you know, modular manufacturing, like the ability to quickly move from, okay, I've been developing this one platform. Of course, there's going to be some reconfiguration, but you know, the way things are set up now, most manufacturing shops, you pretty much have to replace like a lot of the tooling for for the new uh, for the new you know platform product that you're going to make. So I do wonder how much uh, reconfiguration, like the reconfiguration cost, how much it goes down using these types of tools. That'll be kind of interesting because yeah, if we do move to a century series kind of thing, where every you know so often we're moving to a you know we're going to move to the next evolution, it would be a pretty uh, a competitive advantage for Lockheed to be able to just have a, have a, have a much cheaper reconfiguration rate, be able to design something, digital engineering, and then, you know, actually start vegan manufacturing it, you know, 10 X faster than, than it took back in the day. So yeah, that's really interesting to watch. Looks, looks pretty promising. Yeah. Flexible fa- manufacturing has got to be the way of the future. And yeah. I guess this is one way of ha- getting at it. Um, I think Hadrian, their, their view was like, we will build the machine that builds all the machines or something like that. Kind of like the Elon Musk view of the factory that builds the factories or whatever. But I guess their view was almost like you just like input your requirements and we spit out the machine tool like at low cost. So it's almost like more disposable. Whereas I guess this view is like, you just have a flexible, like a more flexible machine that can kind of take on a different task rather than just dramatically lowering the cost of getting some of those machine tools. Of course, Adrian's not even close to there. So maybe this one's further along. Yeah, it does kind of seem when you add, um, add additive manufacturing and, you know, we've seen those videos of those companies who are literally making, you know, missile uh, bodies, uh, you know, with 3D printed. Uh, when you start to combine 3D printing out of manufacturing with these uh, advanced uh, robots that, uh, can do this manufacturing so quickly. That's a pretty deadly combination for her, <laughs> a pretty, pretty robust enhancement to, to the old school, old school manufacturing. So yeah, I'd be interested to see where that goes, but combine those two things, see how fast we can get. U.S. Army orders more strikers with 30 millimeter cannons from Oshkosh, Defense News. The U.S. Army has ordered A3 more striker combat vehicles equipped with 30 millimeter cannons from Oshkosh, a defense worth $99 million to outfit another brigade combat team. The Army decided to outfit three out of the six brigades equipped with, striker, equipped with strikers with 33-millimeter guns following Army Requirements Oversight Council's review evaluating the performance of the 30-millimeter striker Dragoon operated in Europe by the 2nd Cavalry Regiment. So I guess the interesting thing here isn't just that they're upgrading the 30-millimeter. We've, we've known about that for some time, but also that... Uh, it went to Oshkosh instead of GDLS. I think there's a few others that were in the hunt. Um, I'm not really sure where they are, whether Oshkosh was actually going to build strikers themselves, but here they're just outfitting them with the 30 millimeter cannon. I guess it's smart to kind of get them to understand some parts of it. Or was it uh, General Motors, the GM defense that was actually like redesigning the Oshkosh reverse yeah engineer. the reverse engineer <laughs> yeah that, I think that's what it was but still interesting stuff and uh you know breaking the quote-unquote vendor lock to some degree seems to be just like a mission unto itself for the government I still have my eye on the uh, directed energy uh upgrade to the striker where they're uh they say they're gonna gonna equip a 50 kilowatt laser to protect four deployed soldiers from UAVs rocket artillery and mortar threats so that's the one I'm gonna keep my eye on the 30 millimeter gun kind of makes sense, but the laser, the laser 
could be pretty interesting. Yeah, I, w- I want to know how effective that laser is as well. And then relative <laughs> to like kinetic and relative to, I guess, the microwave, like could one day you feasibly like swap out the what they currently have or they're currently envisioning for the, the strikers and replace that with the microwave instead if it worked better? I don't know. I don't know. I want to see a video of the test, though. Probably uh, it probably would be fun to watch. But yeah, yeah you think, you know, like appears they're, they're putting that this stuff like it's my assumption that if government program offices were succeeding more, they would be more willing to like show the results of their tests. I think sometimes they're classified or they, uh, yeah, they don't want to show a vulnerability if it wasn't as successful as they want it to be. But every once in a while, they do put one out there. Yeah. But yeah, they're they are kind of close to both of those. It's kind of- yeah. I, I just wonder to what degree the, like, how how important is the security aspect of it and how much do the adversaries probably already know about it, right? Like, is the free is the availability of information within our own industrial base, you know, a greater benefit than like some perceived benefit of not letting the enemy not know what it actually is. Right. Yeah. I, mean, I think there's been some good, some good articles about, you know, senior leaders saying we overclassify things and yeah. So there probably is some truth to that, that there's some overclassification with some of this, but yeah, there's definitely a, or sort of a um, propensity that if there's potential to show a vulnerability or to, um, you know, give away some capabilities that something might have, you know, people, yeah, most people in that community would default to at least being like secret or something. Yeah. Hypersonic weapons may evade 342 million Pentagon satellite project, China study from Newsweek. Last October, SpaceX and L3 Harris won space development agency contracts to build a total of eight satellites to detect and track missiles as part of the new missile tracking layer um, in low Earth orbit. It will complement what is already the world's most sophisticated missile warning and defense system, the 11 satellite Cyber space-based infrared system operated by the U.S. Space Force. To track hostile hypersonic missiles, however, new research in China suggested that the Defense Department may need to operate up to 100 space-based sensors, according to a report on Monday in Hong Kong's South China Morning Post. The weapon signal could also be obscured. So here's one of the challenges. There's many challenges, of course, with tracking hypersonic weapons, but one of them is that they could be obscured or reduced by the atmosphere and background heat on the Earth. So here's something coming out of China. Of course, we've been tracking what's going on with the SDA missile tracking layer and, and SIPR. Um, as well, they're just saying you're going to need more of them. Uh, I, I think that's probably what SDA has in mind as well. I think that first eight set of had eight set of satellites is kind of just like a down payment. Uh, but I don't know. I, I wonder what their kind of total program uh, consideration is. I know SDA is interested in proliferation, but will they get to? I guess what is asked for here is like 90 essentially of these of these new missile tracking um, satellites and. Be interested to see how that rack and stacks against the the, the Sibbers in terms of the capabilities as well. Yeah, I think it's kind of hard to know the truth here. I mean, there's no doubt that hypersonics make tracking a little bit more challenging. You, you have to catch it, you know, as it's being launched because um, it's a lot harder to see when it's once it's entered and it's you know heading towards its target. You know, once it's in space, though, I would imagine. Yeah, I don't know exactly what altitude the the SDA layer is going to operate at, but that there would be some opportunities to, to catch it once it's once it's actually in orbit. But yeah, this is gonna be challenging. I mean, I think DA's already had challenges with just regular ICBMs, which are a lot more predictable and have a you know kind of a known arc. Hypersonics are less predictable in some cases. And so no doubt, no doubt a challenge, but maybe one thing it does show is that there's gonna have to be an integration of the satellite information from the SDA layer from this HB, you know, D, uh, TDS, as well as, you know, next-gen OPIR, some of the other satellites that are going to have an MDA-type mission, you know, they're going to have to probably work together a little bit more and not, not just be able to rely on one or two platforms uh, to make sure to have a high level of certainty that you can detect some of these missiles. So, yeah, it's probably, probably are some challenges. I don't know if this exact 100 number is accurate. There probably have to be an independent assessment of that, given, given the source there. Yeah, I guess the number doesn't actually really matter, right? Because like, hopefully, uh, the US's hypersonic research is progressing such that 
when they test the hypersonics, they can also test their missile tracking <laughs> in, in different configurations of that. So like they'll kind of understand what like, you know, was 20 enough, you know, 30 enough, like maybe and they'll just kind yeah. of empirically get there. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so sticking with the same topic here, Space Development Agency launches experimental infrared sensor into orbit, C4ISR net. The prototype infrared payload, or PURPLE, I don't know exactly how to say that, P-I-R-P-L, PURPLE, will use the multispectral sensor to detect ballistic missiles from low orbits. By placing these sensors more than 20,000 miles closer to the Earth's surface than Sibir and GEO, of course, um, they can more easily pick up the relatively brighter threats. PURPLE is the first experimental, the first experiment in that missile warning capability known as the tracking layer. The sensor will give SDA its first look at the infrared background noise of the Earth's surface, ocean, and atmosphere at different times of day and night. And understanding that this is the first step in being able to pick out hypersonic threats from space. So potentially, again, you know, the China analysts are jumping the gun. Like, <laughs> we don't exactly know exact what those capabilities will be. They're testing that out. So, you know, however many satellites they need will probably be understood better, you know, over time as they experiment and then as they are able to track things. But again, here's the, I kind of like what they're doing. I, I don't have a great clue here, but it seems like what they did was they just had this like small instrument, uh, purple, the prototype infrared payload, and they put that onto a CubeSat or a SmallSat or some other payload. And it's just going to burn itself up, but it was really just for an experiment before they kind of embarked on this larger um process here and i don't know are they delivering this kind of technology to spacex and l3 or are they potentially also coming up with their own sensor technologies i doubt it so anyway i like the prototype and kind of incremental approach that they're taking yeah i definitely agree but the, you know the one thing is you you don't need a sophisticated technology when, when you're closer um closer to the earth's surface you know when you when you're out of geo you, you really do have to have, you know, everything that got, that super cool kind of operating on the edge of technology to really, uh, you know, achieve, achieve kind of those, those really high, high level specifications and, and, uh, you know, operational needs. So, so yeah, when you, when you, when you start getting closer to the, uh, closer to the earth, you can, you can probably do with a little bit of the latest, you know, not, not having the latest and greatest tech. Um, so, you know, cheaper, you can proliferate them. So you're not as, you know, potentially vulnerable to an ASAT or some type of disruption. Um, yeah. So I think it's, you know, it makes a lot of sense that tracking layer would be, will be a, you know, great addition to the whole missile warning enterprise. And uh, yeah, it looks like also, um, you know, because it's also going to be closer, it's going to be able to kind of measure more background noise, of kind of the earth surface and ocean and atmosphere and so it might actually be some interesting, uh, interesting data that they pick up just by, you know, I don't think historically we've had missile warning capabilities that have been that, that close. So might actually be able to pick up some other interesting stuff that has other applications. So yeah, kind of interesting. One of the ones uh, kind of still in the hypersonics here, how America almost got hypersonic aircraft decades ago from Sandbox. This is kind of a long, uh, hard to excerpt uh, article here. But one of the things I thought was interesting, I'd like to get your reaction to this, was the claim that, you know, okay, there was all this hypersonic research. You had like the X-15 where you're actually had a person going like more than Mach 6, apparently. Um, and there's all sorts of other things like the dinosaur that they were experimenting on in the 60s. And of course, you had the SR-71. But then once you got the F-117, the Air Force just kind of like threw up their hands and were like, this is the stealth is the future. And they just basically abandoned hypersonics for the most part um, is the way that the article kind of made it sound. And now that like stealth is proliferating and there's countermeasures as well, hypersonics are coming back into, into the conversation. And I think it's kind of like an interesting historical arc, but I wonder to what degree, you know, the, the way that acquisition works, you know, in this kind of centralization and requirements process, it almost like forces you to kind of go all in or something. It like neglects relevant alternatives or contingencies that might occur. And so you kind of get this winner take all solution, not just in terms of platforms, but in terms of like technical approaches. And so what do you think about that? You know, is that, is that kind of like a weakness of the acquisition system? We could kind of go to and fro um, between extremes and we're not really like 
hedging our bets in a, in a sane manner to some degree based on, um, I guess, like differing viewpoints and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. I don't think you can argue at all that the, the Air Force went all in on stealth. Uh, I, think, I think you can look at how, how the Air Force really fairly recently picked up the electronic warfare you know, mantle and started, um, you know, really started looking at EW as like a critical, um, a critical enabler uh, of some of the missions that it needed to accomplish. Whereas the Navy, on the other hand, you know, was really, really kind of leaning forward on, on EW for, for years and, and did not rely on stealth, primarily because they had to operate for more austere, you know, Navy carriers are not great for maintaining really exotic soft coating, you know, that was needed for like F-117 and things like that. So, you know, so I think, I think bottom line, when I read this article, it kind of struck me as I think, I think the acquisition system ultimately is a practical, pragmatic thing. And it winds up going towards that thing that is most um, manageable. And so, you know, I think as technology advances, maybe what wasn't so manageable before becomes more manageable. And now we can, you know, the F-35 can, you know, can track things that, you know, you never could have been imagined, you know, the, the distance of the radar and, you know, just the, uh, the ability to process data, you know, I just couldn't imagine that. And so, you know, I think we, I think we advance as the technology becomes more mainstream. And when you look at these platforms, yeah, we did, you know, we were doing hypersonic flight, essentially Mach 6.7, uh, but those planes were not going to be operational platforms. They were not going to be practical for, you know, for doing sustained operations. They were not going to last for very long. Um, you know, they relied on what are they, liquid propellant rocket engines, you know, basically that's not something that you, know, you could really kind of like, you know, expand to the fleet and everybody, you know, everybody's flying in a rocket ship. So, yeah. So I think you're right. I think, we yeah, but you could have done SR 71s, right? Like, and those I things know, actually get stronger over time because of the heat actually like temperate, like treating <laughs> the metal. Right. So those things yeah. are like rock solid. And I remember like, you know, Skunkworks wanted to sell all sorts of S1s, like fighters and all these other types of stuff for like operational use. And there, the Air Force uh, poo-pooed that probably for for cost reasons, I'm sure. But oh yeah, they they were not a practical aircraft. I mean, they 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 had a ton of maintenance. They had to be treated just so they uh, they leaked hydraulic fuel and hydraulic fluid and fuel like crazy. I mean, when they came down and landed, they would the plates would separate and, you know, all kinds of uh, fluids would leak out onto the tarmac. So yeah, they were not practical planes except for, you know, that one mission, that high altitude mission. So I think, yeah, I think you can. But you ultimately think that the the to-ing and fro-ing is is the good thing? Or do you think like a more hedged strategy makes more sense? I think you are right. I mean, I think um, we were kind of talking about how, well, for one, I think we should have a lot, lot more eggs, you know, in our basket, right? Like we kind of have, really relied on one, two or three platforms at any given time. And we don't really have a lot of eggs in the next basket. And then we, we kind of make these jumps. So yeah, I absolutely agree. I think we have a lot more eggs in the basket. We should be trying more things. And then yeah, hedging some of those things so that if um, yeah, maybe the stealth didn't work as well. Well, we had actually advanced DW or, you know, I think hypersonic missiles is a great example. We got so used to the fact that we could drop JVMs very precisely in these low permissive environments. We got very used to SDBs, you know, being able to accomplish most of the missions that we started to say, oh, we don't really need hypersonics until we did, right? And now now we're playing catch up. So yeah, I think we should always be hedging and putting, if it's not, if it's not the thing we want to feel, we should putting that 10%, 20%, like we were talking about, you know, aside for for that next thing and making sure that we don't lose the bubble completely. And then, then we're like playing, you know, major catch ups. So, no, I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, this is what a market does well. It's like someone looks out and says hypersonics is undervalued, like whatever that thing might be in the in the market sector. Like, <laughs> right? They look at the the uses of inputs and in, in the product constellation out there. They're like, something's wrong. I'm speculating that I could, you know, provide value by doing it this way. And usually they're incentivized to kind of take the, the outsider's view, what people are missing. And so there's that natural tendency to do those types of things. And the military is the exact opposite, right? Uh, everything's consensus-based and you want to kind of kill all those things that, that might be different or 
you, you don't exactly see what the contingency is, or it might be a low contingency. So I don't know. I, I just kind of feel like, well, if you kind of gave money to folks, competent folks who had positions of leadership positions, I'm sure someone in there would have been like, yeah, I'm definitely going to keep some money on this hypersonic thing, right? Like there's, there's definitely progress here, but the, the swings is really kind of just like built into our kind of bureaucratic system of programming and PBBE. So I'll bring it back to there. <laughs> no, no, I think, I think that's it. It's like, unless you have a program of record, I think it's the, the, uh, the, the, the program of record, you know, disease where once you have, once you have a program of record, you are expected to buy, buy so many things. And that's just becomes the, you know, that is the, the expectation from all of the stakeholders. You're going to continue to buy this thing. And if something is existing in like a, you know, kind of a middle world where it's not quite a program of record, but it's more than a prototype, people don't understand what to do with it. Like, why do you have that? Why isn't it a program of record? Why aren't you buying a bunch of things? And so, yeah, we have to get over that. I think that that program of record mentality and move to, yeah, it's okay for things to operate in, in that middle ground because then when the time comes, we can scale, we'll be ready to scale, uh, you know, to, to make, you know, to make that the, the new, the new thing. And, you know, not just start from scratch. All right. Last one we'll do here real quick. One of the most troubled pieces of hardware in the U S Navy, uh, new aircraft carrier will, will be ready this year. Business insider after more than four years of delays, the Navy's newest and most expensive aircraft carrier finally is set to have all of its weapons elevators working by the end of the year. The Ford elevator system uses new technology, high-powered magnets instead of cables to move ordnance. Last summer, the service said it had six elevators working. At that time, Navy officials said the elevators would be ready by the time the ship went to shock trials, uh, which actually just happened. And the service announced that the ship completed the last of its three shock trials, of course, on August 8th, and four of the elevators were not installed. So four of the elevators out of 12, I believe, um, or is it 11, uh, have been installed or have not been installed and they should be installed by the end of the year. And of course, this is, you know, many years late. When, when was the construction started on that? I think it was like 20, 2008 or between 2008 and 2012. So this has been taking a long time. And it's just kind of weird. I, I just want to know, what is the benefit of the magnets over the cables? Like, are you really getting that much more throughput on these things? Or was it worth the cost? I don't know. And it's, it still seems like, you know, they're trying to integrate something that they didn't exactly know how it would work. You know, there's still speculation at, at that stage. And I don't know, tons of problems here, but it's good to see that, you know, things are finally coming together and hopefully the forward kind of, and, and it's follow-ons, of course, the 79 and 80, I think are already kind of underway. So hopefully those things, you know, contribute well to the force structure. Yeah. I'm going to go on a limb and say that um, magnets and large Navy ships don't seem to go well together. Uh, emails, <laughs> you, you got these uh, weapons, weapons bays. Uh, yeah. There's a, there's a, like a real challenge with the, with the magnetics um, and the electromagnetic gun. And they just cancel <laughs> that too. Right. I yeah. wonder if there's something in there. It's like, Oh, well we cancel that, but you know, we're not going to cancel the emails. Remember Trump actually went onto one of these ships and he was like, we're going to turn it back into a steam catapult. Steam is, <laughs> steam is the best. Most reliable, I guess. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think once you perfect those things, it probably is more reliable in some ways. Cause like yeah. every cables probably have a lot of maintenance. They're probably like hard to get to. Like I'm sure there's some really good reasons for these. Um, and I'm sure, you know, and the emails, like if, yeah, I've had friends who've, you know, been on those carriers when the, when planes take off and like, that catapult going through the entire ship is like an incredible amount of force. It's kind of amazing that there's not more accidents. So, so yeah, not having that huge, you know, hydraulic catapult is, yeah. So some of these things make a lot of sense. They're just, you know, I guess haven't, haven't been uh, operationalized and this is part of the growing pains. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird that they wanted to, like, I wonder how feasible it would then to retrofit or whether like at that stage, they should have just been like, CVN 80 will be the first one to integrate uh, emails instead of CVN 78. You know, it seems like this whole, like everything that the Navy's done over the past decade, they've brought it on themselves, get, like where Congress is coming back at them and saying, only land-based testing. You must do, you know, every subsystem prototype certified by the CTO before like you start any kind of major program. So it's like, 
now they're just swinging way in the other direction as like almost too much, you know, and it, it's like the Navy almost brought it upon itself to some degree, <laughs> but now it might be facing like the opposite problem. Yeah, it's probably trying not to have like different configurations too. So you don't have to like, you know, all the, the training and maintenance. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe they were trying to, trying to stay standardized and hoping but they you're can still have those Nimbus <laughs> classes forever. Right. Like, some of those uh, other those older guys are going to be around for a long time. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're not just going to start retiring. There's always going to be that phase and period. Um, but no, I hear you. I mean, at some point you got you got to make the make the turn. So that's all we got for you guys this week. Uh, thanks for joining us. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.